Friday. Good morning, church. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. I noticed uh, a few weeks ago that we were, or I announced that we we're going to put a pause on um, our preaching through the Gospel of John and take a couple weeks to turn our attention to prayer. Um, don't get me wrong, the Gospel of John uh, has some amazing teaching on prayer, as we will see, in fact, uh, John chapter 17, uh, known as the high priestly prayer of our Lord. John 14 is incredible. Um, but so we're not jumping ahead and jumping back and forth in John. I thought we'd start in Matthew chapter 6 today and what's referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It's probably better titled the Disciples' Prayer. This is not a prayer that our Lord would have prayed. Um, if you've been with us for a while, we've, we've done a number of teachings on prayer over the years. Uh, we spent about um, well, four or five weeks praying through the Psalms. In fact, that Psalm 139, you might remember, um, Search me, O Lord, is one of the prayers. But I think that was all the way back at the townhouse. So that was some time ago. We've... Uh, studied how to pray through the prophets Elijah and Elijah. If you've been with us for a while, you may remember that. Uh, we spent time in uh, the book of Daniel, um, another powerhouse man of, of God who, who prayed. And um, then I think it was about two years ago, we, we studied uh, Paul's prayers to all the churches. You'll notice whenever Paul prays, he, he states his prayer and says, so that... And then he gives a very specific designation on what he's asking the Lord to do. Um, but it's been a while for us. So, I don't know, it was coincidentally, about four or five weeks ago, a number of you separately um, just started talking to me and asking if there was any teaching on prayer on the horizon. Um, so, the Lord showed me and it became pretty evident that it was an important need for all of us. Um, so we'll return to John's gospel in several weeks, but in the meantime, I want us to turn our hearts to God and ask Jesus, as one of his disciples did in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us to pray. And I thought starting here in Matthew 6 was a good place for us to lay down a foundation for us over the next couple weeks on prayer. Um, we won't spend our entire time in this prayer only. This will probably um, span about two weeks or so, um, as both the Old and New Testaments are filled with scriptural insight um, on what prayer is and um, what purpose it has for the believer. I think a lot of it has become lost in today's church, but for us to start our teaching today, you can't beat the instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ himself here in, in Matthew 6. So I'm excited to see how God uses this text to reshape and to empower our prayer life. And I really believe that by the time we're um, done studying this, that it'll be a life-changing experience for all of us. Uh, it is monumental in terms of its instructive capability. The Lord instructs, he teaches us how to pray. So let's begin by reading this prayer. And I want to begin in verse 5, um, so we understand the context in which our Lord um, said this and we're going to spend a, a decent amount of time today covering a lot of the context and some of the um, historical um, views of prayers and um, but we'll kind of see what the Lord allows us to do here so Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 these are the words of our Lord Jesus said and when you pray you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I truly believe that prayer is one of the most vital subjects in all of the Christian's life. And though it's often talked about, as God's children, we must learn how it is that we should pray. And I believe uh, in this incredible pattern of prayer, our Lord will teach us just that. Um, now, I think we're all aware of just how important prayer is. Um, the Apostle Paul instructed the church to pray without ceasing. That means to pray and never stop praying. <laughs> now, anything that is to be so consuming in a Christian's life must be rightly understood. If we do not know how to pray and we do not know what to pray for, then it does us little good to keep on praying. If, however, we know how to pray and for what to pray, then praying without ceasing has tremendous importance and significance. Now, before we just jump into this prayer, as I said, I want to spend some time on the context here for you. And in Matthew's gospel, um, he is presenting for us the king. As John's gospel is written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Matthew's gospel is presenting for the Jew, your king is here. This is the king. And here in chapters 5 through 7, the king is giving the standards of his kingdom. And he gives the standards of his kingdom in contrast to the supposed standards of his day. And the Jews of Jesus' day had developed a religious system. And they thought that it was adequate to get them into the kingdom of God. But of course it wasn't. So here in chapter 6, Jesus is zeroing in on three of their religious activities or religious disciplines, if you will. They're giving, they're praying, and they're fasting. You'll see these in chapter 6. And he uses them as the backdrop to reaffirm what is God's true standard for his children. These are the conditions of being a child of the king. This is the way a true son or the daughter of the king lives. Not like the Jews of this time. Now, let me just say that out of the three he uses here, giving, praying, and fasting, uh, the greater emphasis is placed on praying because praying is more important. Giving is important, but you're only going to give properly when you give out of a constant communion with God. Only when you're responding with a heart that is filled with gratitude to God are you going to give. And fasting is absolutely meaningless apart from prayer. So the concept of prayer then is very basic to all giving and to all fasting. And that's why when the Lord picks out three areas of religious life, praying, giving, and fasting, he concentrates most of the things he says on the subject of praying. I love what Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said about prayer. He said, man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. I believe that is true. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, this was the Jews of Jesus' day. What message is there in it for us today? Listen, in terms of the, the church today, there are many cases where we turn our, I'll call it relational activities with the Lord, um, into religious responsibilities. And in many cases, we are just as inadequate as of the Jews of Jesus' day. There is plenty of giving going on for self-glory. There is plenty of fasting going on to call attention to our supposed holiness. And there is plenty of praying going on that doesn't recognize the basic, biblical, divine standard of true prayer. 
In fact, um, because prayer is so important and because we often do not have the wisdom to pray as we ought, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, and he said this about the church. This is on this side of the cross. He said, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. So he says two things there. Often we do not know how to pray, and we do not know what to pray for. Therefore, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And why does he intercede for us? Verse 27, he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The will of God. Thank God for the Holy Spirit in our prayer life. So we have the same problem, folks. We've got the same problem. This is why our Lord is affirming the need for a proper prayer, a proper understanding of what and how we should pray. And he says regarding giving, uh, don't do it this way, don't do it this way, don't do it this way. As far as fasting, don't do it this way, don't do it this way, don't do it this way. As far as praying, don't do it this way, don't do it this way, but do it this way. This is the only one where he gives a, a detailed description of how we are to pray. There's not a lot of discussion about how we are to give in this chapter. There's um, not a lot of discussion on how we are to fast. They're just kind of lightly touched here. But how we are to pray is totally, specifically, and comprehensively covered in this one simple prayer. It's an absolute masterpiece of the infinite mind of an all-knowledgeable God and covers every conceivable element of prayer, and he reduces it to one simple pattern here for us. It's an absolute tragedy that the church today only knows this as something to recite at the end of a worship service. That was never the intention for it. No, here our Lord has given to us the means of correcting our prayers. And he models for us the most important elements that should be in all of our prayers. Now, I want to go and take another step in, in introducing this prayer, as I believe there are really two main pillars to our faith. The first pillar we need is the study of the Word of God. The study of God's Word. And then right behind that is prayer. And I think that the Bible supports that the study of the Word of God comes first. Why? Well, I think this because we won't know how to pray unless we know what the Bible teaches us about prayer and about what God's will is and about who God is and about our lives and about our problems. Therefore, it is the study of the Word of God that gives birth to it an effective and powerful prayer life. So let me just give you a couple examples of what I mean. And I don't mean to pick on anyone because I'm guilty of every single one of these. But there are plenty of good Christians out there who will plead with God to give them the Holy Spirit. When they have the Holy Spirit already. There are people who plead with Christ to give me strength. And the Bible says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. We probably all pray before, Lord, please be with me this week. But Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always. <laughs> well, why do we ask God to bless us when the Bible says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we'll uncover as we go the, the authority that we have in Christ. But unless we understand the truth of God's word, uh, we really don't know how it is to pray. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul details the full armor of God so we can stand against the wiles of our spiritual enemy, the devil, he lists all of our protective armor so that we may be able to withstand the evil of the day. But we're not only protected, you see, for Paul says our good Lord gives us a weapon. He says, yeah, and don't forget to grab the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And the Spirit of truth, uh, we learn in John chapter 14, Jesus says, will teach you all things and will bring remembrance of my Word. 
So then those two pillars become absolutely monumental in the believer's life. The study of God's word, that is God who speaks to us. And as a corollary prayer, as we are privileged through our high priest, Jesus Christ, to enter into the very throne room of God as we speak to him. Prayer then that is guided by the Holy Spirit with the knowledge of God's truth becomes powerfully effective. It becomes more than just your praying to God. It transforms it into a sacred communion with God as our hearts draw near to his heart. Our will becomes his will. And then as Jesus said in John 14, 13, and this is an incredible promise and and it is at the top of your notes and will be a key verse of ours for the next four weeks, no matter what prayer we're looking at. Because Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, that will I do. Notice, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's God's promise. Yeah, amen indeed. So when we study God's word and ground our prayers in biblical truth, in God's will and for his glory, our hearts and our prayers become aligned with an all-knowing and an all-powerful God. So whatever we ask in his name, Jesus says he will do so that the Father will be glorified. A lot different than that name it and claim it stuff. So... Let me tell you what else happens when we allow his word to direct our prayers. We discover also the real condition of our own spiritual lives. And that only drives us deeper into personal prayer as we open up our hearts and pour them out to an all-knowing and all-loving God. And I know in my own life, nothing drives me more to commune with God as much as the opening up of God's word. Now, um, when you look back to its inception, no nation, no people group has ever put such a priority on prayer than Israel. As God's chosen people, the Jews were the recipients of God's word. The Jews had the oracles of God entrusted to them. God spoke directly to Abraham and to many of his descendants, and they spoke directly to God. No other people has ever been so favored by God or has had such direct communication with him. So of all people, they should have known of how it is that we should pray. But as in every other aspect of their spiritual life, they had created so many errors and had countless corruptions within the divine commandments of God that like their giving and like their fasting, their prayer life had deteriorated to the point of complete hypocrisy as well. Now, how is it that this happened? Hebrew scholars point to five things, and most of these will show up in verses 5 through 8. So you'll see them, and we'll review that afterwards. Real quickly, number one, their first fault was that their, their prayers became a ritual. They were ritualized prayer givers. The wording and the form of their prayers that the Pharisees recited were predetermined and were simply written down and read or were simply memorized and recited. Their ritual approach to, to prayer replaced the reality of a heart poured out before God. It became a meaningless religious exercise for many. A second fault that creeped into Jewish prayer life was the development of a prescribed prayer for every occasion. And I mean, they had a prayer for everything. Everything. There were specific prayers for good news. There were specific prayers if you received bad news. They had a specific prayer for if they needed it to rain. They had a specific prayer to read if they needed the sun to shine. They had a prayer for a new moon. They had a prayer for a half of moon. One rabbi said the intent was to bring every aspect of life into the presence of God. But by making the prayers prescribed and then formalized, 
it wasn't long before it became yet another routine, another duty, and eventually it became so exhausted for all of their prayers, it once again became a burden to its people. Of course, that wasn't at all what God had designed for prayer. And which is why that fact that this prayer is just recited is an absolute mockery to the text itself. This is not what Jesus was calling for this prayer to teach. A third fault was the practice of limiting prayers to specific times and occasions. And we may do this in our life. We pray before um, lunch or dinner or breakfast. Or maybe we have a prescribed prayer for when we wake up and when we go to sleep. Um, and, you know, many faithful Jews, like we saw in Daniel, use these designated times of prayer to have faith-filled, heartfelt communion with God. But no, not the Pharisees. No matter what they were doing, when the clock struck 12, no matter where they were or what they were doing, they would all of a sudden rattle off some prescribed prayer, the 12 o'clock prayer, and just start praying it. It had zero relation to any, any genuine desire or need that they had. They prayed it simply because it was 12 o'clock. The fourth fault was the admiring of long, drawn-out prayers. The Pharisees believed the sanctity and effectiveness of prayers were in direct proportion to its length. So this, of course, led to more public praying uh, so they could impress each other with their long, drawn-out and big-worded prayers for everyone. And then, lastly, this led to fault number five in their prayers, a tendency to pick up vain repetitions. You see, the religious leaders had become influenced by other pagan religions. The pagans' approach to prayer is to keep repeating yourself until your God gets so weary of hearing for you that he finally does whatever it is that you want. You'll remember we read about this, in fact, in 1 Kings chapter 18, with the prophets uh, Baal in their contest with Elijah, as they repeatedly called on Baal from morning until noon, cutting themselves, throwing themselves into a frenzy, hour after hour repeating the same empty phrases over and over again. And we see Elijah say, uh, what's wrong? Has he gone to the bathroom? Uh, maybe he's gone for a trip or something. I don't think he can hear you. But the real evil that Jesus points to here is that men prayed to be seen by other men. Whether it was in the synagogues or on the busiest street corners, they prayed for their own glory and not for God's. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray... And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Do they love to pray out on the streets because they love intimate communion with God? No. They love to pray so that they could be seen by men. And this word see here, it's the verb theamao. It's actually where we get the word theatrical or theater from. In other words, they wanted to put on a show. They wanted to be on the stage. And the term hypocrite here originally refers to actors who wore the large Greek masks to portray the different roles that they were playing. Hypocrites are nothing but actors and pretenders, persons who play a role in the theater. They're putting on a show for everyone to see how holy it is we were. Now listen, that was the wrong motive, wasn't it? And church, that's what Jesus wants to deal with here in these verses. Our motives. Our motives for prayer. We live in an incredibly selfie-driven world. Prayer is not so sacred that Satan cannot invade it. If I never learn anything more out of the text, you know what I learned this week? I learned that there's no holy ground that Satan doesn't want to tread on. Do you think when we're in the deepest devotion and when I enter into the throne room of a holy God, when I'm communing in God in his holy presence, that I wouldn't have sin on my heels? But I do. 
I'm tempted just like everybody else to make my prayer life all about me. It's me focused. It's me centered. God, do what I want. Oh, but for your glory, God. <laughs> it, it makes me sick. But pride and sin wants to follow us right into the presence of God. And if you really want to understand, if you really want to understand something about the nature of Satan and how, it, and how he works, go read Luke chapter 4 again. It's when our Lord goes out and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights in isolation in the wilderness to commune with God. That's the true picture of Satan. We see him going out there, following our Lord. We see him tempting the very Son of God while he's alone, communing with the Father in prayer. There's no sacred ground for Satan. He'll invade all of it if you give him the opportunity. In fact, I think the two greatest temptations that our Lord ever had, that he ever experienced in his life, was leading up to his death in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. And both times were when Jesus was in solitary communion with the Father. But the Son of God did not tarry. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, we see Jesus praying so fervently that his sweat becomes like blood, drops of blood falling to the ground. An angel comes from heaven and strengthens our Lord. We see elsewhere Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Yet Jesus said, but not my will, but yours be done. Satan did everything in his power to make that cup of suffering look too great for our Lord. But Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. The lesson here, church, is don't think because you have gone to the place of prayer that you have avoided the enemy. He'll be there doing everything he can, dogging your footsteps. So in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you may be praying, but your prayers have fallen to Satan's temptation. And he condemns their prayers with essentially two faults. In verses 5 and 6, they were praying self-centered prayers. It was pride that entered their hearts, and we all know what pride is. Pride is a fatal flaw. Jesus said, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. There is nothing inherently evil or prideful about where you pray, or in what posture it is that you pray in. You can pray standing up, you can pray kneeling down, you can be on your face to pray. You can also pray wherever it is that you are called to pray. It could be on the street corner or it could be in a private place in your house. That's not the issue. Jesus is saying the issue is these men love to pray in order that they may be seen by men and heard by men. When we pray as the church or when we are alone, we we best be sure that we are communing to God and God alone. Not performing for men. And not praying self-centered prayers that call attention only to me. Those have zero place in God's kingdom. Scripture doesn't condemn public prayer. It only condemns self-centered prayers. And you can pray a self-centered prayer in public or in private it is the posture of your heart there is no sin more powerful and more destructive than pride so jesus says at the end of verse five they have their reward in full they wanted to pray before men in order to get praise from them well they got it so that's it that's their reward it's actually a, a business word meaning um a closed transaction. Done deal. They got their reward. God owes them nothing. So 
we go from the wrong way to pray to what true prayer looks like in verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus says, But you, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room. This was the uh, most private place you had. It could be a small room. It, it could be a closet. In fact, uh, the rooms here, or this area here that they're talking about, was used to keep whatever treasures that it is that you might have. The place you wouldn't bring strangers in so that they knew what was so valuable in this room. This was a treasured room that you would go into. Jesus says, go in there and close the door. Then pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying, if necessary, go to the most private place that you can so that you will not be tempted if you were to have friends and family that was over in the first century in a very small house. Go there. Go to the inner room, the private room, that special place. Go there. Shut the door. Shut everything else out. And there you can have intimate communion with your Father in heaven. And we see this in Jesus' life, don't we? Remember after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with the fishes and the loaves, just study a couple months ago, he sent his disciples out on the boat, and Jesus goes up on the mountain to what? Pray. By himself. So he can have that private and intimate communion time alone with his heavenly Father. And he says at the end of verse 6, And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Two different rewards, notice. Verse 5, a temporal reward, an earthly reward by men. You got seen by men. Woo! Verse 6, an eternal reward from your Father in heaven. I'll take option two. <laughs> and when the Father who is in secret sees the secret of your heart, he binds himself together with you. It doesn't matter if the whole world is listening. There is an intimacy in that communion that is uninfected. He is in secret in the sense that only here does God read the hearts. And there I pour my heart out to him. You and your heavenly father in secret. What a good father. There's a second sin that Jesus was going to address. The first, self-centered prayers. The second was pagan-centered prayers. I mean, it's shocking that we read these verses. And I, I, I want to just briefly mention this, because I've kind of outlined this already with what these practices entailed. But think about this. This is how far uh, the religious leader, leaders of Judaism have fallen. Jesus first says, don't pray like the hypocrites who pray only to be recognized by man. And now Jesus says in verse 7... And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. You could put in there as the pagans do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. <laughs> so as I said, the Jews had had picked up on this practice from the surrounding Gentile nations. No doubt Rome had influenced some of the people. Prayers of muttering and meaningless repetition of words. They didn't come seeking their God in any sort of reverence. Oh no. The pagans came seeking their gods in fear and trembling and babbling in order to arouse them into listening and they would chant their names over and over and over again for hours we see this in scripture actually in acts chapter uh acts chapter 19 when paul was preaching the gospel throughout ephesus and the pagans there just go out of their minds uh, because the gospel was going forth with such power by paul and his missionary team it says in acts chapter 19 verse 34 they all shouted, this is the pagans, in unison. 
for about two hours. Great is our Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours in unison. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis over and over in unison. Two hours. So this was how the pagans prayed to their gods and goddesses. Mindless chants for hours on end. And so Jesus paints a, a vivid contrast here. He says in verses 7 and 8, Do not be like them. Do not use meaningless repetitions as the pagans do. God doesn't need you to hound him. Lord Jesus says, Your father knows what you need before you ask. He already knows. <laughs> you don't have to badger the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like the pagans do with their nonsense. And we have churches today rolling and babbling still to this day. They must have missed this prayer that the Lord taught. These people, they had abandoned the purity of genuine heartfelt prayer. And they had forsaken it for the routine, routines of pagans and for rituals. So Jesus says, throw all that stuff out and pray then in this way. And in verses 9 through 13, our Lord teaches all of us how it is that we should pray. And if you follow this pattern of prayer, and again, this is a pattern laid out for us. This is not something to just be mindlessly repeated as he just taught. <laughs> I mean, do you see now how ridiculous that is that everyone knows his prayer is just this mindless thing that we've repeated all of our life? Jesus says, don't do that. What, what, what does the church do? We do that. We just repeat it. But if you allow this as a pattern of prayer, and I looked over the book that you guys are doing, that book is, that Sunday morning study, if you want to grow in your prayer life, I would be there at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. It, it hits on tons of great key um, points in there. But if, if you follow this pattern of prayer, you will have the confidence that you're praying the way that Jesus has taught you to pray. Don't you want to pray the way Jesus told you to pray? So what are we doing? We don't have that much time left today unless you want to stay till 6, but... Uh, oh, you want to? Okay, we'll... Uh, let's just get the first section of the prayer done, and, and let's look at God's paternity. God's paternity. Our prayer begins with our Father. Appropriate for Father's Day, huh? Our Father. Look at verse 9 and notice how the prayer begins. Jesus said, pray then in this way. Don't repeat word for word what I say. Pray then in this kind of a way. Take this prayer and use this prayer to inform your own prayer life. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, faithful Jews had known God as their father in several ways. One of the ways they saw him as their father was he was the um, father of Israel. Um, in Isaiah 63, the prophet declared, You, O Lord, are our father. And he's speaking as, as the nation of Israel. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, God said to Israel, for I am a father to Israel. But they also saw him in a far more intimate way. As he was not just Israel's spiritual father, but savior. In Psalm 89, we read, He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation see how personal that is and intimate so you know i knew i was running out of time preparing last night so those are the, the, just a quick few examples there, there are hundreds in the bible of the relation of israel recognizing that god was their father their heavenly father but over the centuries because of their disobedience to god and their repeated idolatry with pagan gods, most Jews by Jesus' day had, 
had lost the sense of God's intimate fatherhood. They saw God as father only in a a remote, distant um, kind of a sense. He had become a faded figure who had once guided their ancestors. But Jesus reaffirms to them what their scriptures had taught them and what faithful, godly Jews had always believed that God is the Father of heaven for all that would believe in him. And as we've noticed throughout our study in John's Gospel, Jesus uses the title of Father constantly, right? We've seen this over and over again. My Father, my Father, my Father. Every prayer, besides our Lord's prayer on the cross, Jesus uses the title Father. On the cross, Jesus prayed, My God, my God! Emphasizing the moment of separation that he experienced as he bore our sin, he bore our shame upon that tree. Then he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He turns into God. All other prayers, all other references are to my Father, my Father, my Father. Therefore, Jesus provided the way for us to be able to go to the Father in prayer. But what does it mean to us when we start our prayers with Father? First of all, it means the end of fear. The end of fear. Especially in this first century culture, the people, again, feared their pagan deities. Imagine being able to go to your father in heaven in a time of need. Completely unheard of in a Gentile nation. This was totally foreign to the pagans. So what a joy this gave them. Go, encounter, and speak. Call on your father. Second, the knowledge of God's fatherhood settles uncertainty and gives hope. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? You have a heavenly Father who is always watching over his children. Number three, knowing God as your heavenly Father settles the matter of loneliness. Even if you're rejected or abandoned, by your own family, by your own earthly father. If your father has gone on and passed away, if your best friend of yours has betrayed you and skipped town and left nothing but ashes and smoke, even if the whole world has turned its back on you, we know our heavenly father will never leave us and he'll never forsake us. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 21, he who, has, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's another one of God's promises. Number four, knowing God's fatherhood should settle the matter of selfishness. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. He used the plural pronouns because we are fellow children with the rest of God's household. He's got a a big family across the world. In fact, you'll notice that there's no singular personal pronoun in this entire prayer. We pray, holding up to God what is best for all of his children, not just One, our Father. Number five, knowing God as our Father settles the matter of resources. He is our Father who is in heaven. All resources of heaven are available to us when we trust God as our heavenly supplier. I read uh, part of it earlier, but it's just so good I'll read it again. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Number six, God's fatherhood should settle the 
matter of obedience. If Jesus as God's son, the son of God, came down from heaven not to do his own will, but to do the will of the father, how much more are we as adopted children to do his will? Obedience to God is one of the supreme marks of our relationship to him as his children. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Family. Yet, in his amazing grace, God loves and cares for his children even when they sometimes go astray. I think to the story in Luke chapter 15, which is known as the prodigal son, probably better titled the parable of the loving father. Because it is first a picture of our heavenly father who can forgive both a selfish child, a self-righteous child who remains moral and upright, and then also forgives the son who wanders away into immorality, squanders all of his father that he had, his father had given to him only to later return our father forgives both of his children in the story and so when we look at matthew 6 verse 9 our father then it indicates god's eagerness to lend his ear to his children his power and his eternal blessings to the petitions of his children if it serves them best and further reveals God's glory. God's a good, good father. He doesn't spoil his children. The first thing we do in prayer is we set God then in his rightful place. Then everything else will flow from it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The, 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 do you see? The major thrust of this prayer is that it focuses on the glory of God and that it's fitting because that's what all prayer should ultimately do prayer isn't me trying to get him to do what i want him to do and twisting his arm prayer is myself affirming the majesty and the sovereignty of my god taking my will and making it submissive to his will that's true prayer listen beloved prayer is never an attempt to bend the will of god to my desire prayer is meant to bend me to his desires that's why we got the whole thing messed up. We're praying for ourselves. We don't take into account the whole faith-filled community of God. And we don't take into account the whole will of God and the parameters of his own kingdom that he has in order. And this entire pattern then focuses on God. Notice Verse 9, and you'll see this is how I, I created the outline. Our Father who art in heaven, that's God's paternity. Hallowed be your name, that's God's priority. Your kingdom come, that's God's plan. Your will be done, that's God's purpose. Give us this day our daily bread, that's God's provision. And forgive us of our debts, that's God's pardon. And lead us not in temptation, that's God's protection. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's God's preeminence. From beginning to end, the focus is on God. And on his adoration, his worthiness, his, his majesty. And ultimately, all for his glory. Every aspect of true righteousness, the righteousness that characterizes God's kingdom citizens, focuses on him. God's supreme purpose for prayer, the purpose beyond all other purposes, is to glorify him. And although nothing benefits the believer more than prayer, the purpose in praying must first of all be for the sake of God and not for self. 
Remember God's promise. Remember God's promise to us. John 14, 13. Our dear Lord says, whatever you ask, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. I mean, this is, this is a big promise. Whatever you ask, but, but it's connected and, and hinged to so that the Father may be glorified. So prayer is not for us just to get what we want. Prayer is to put on the full majesty of God on full display. Let's um, let's pray, and I'll 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 wrap up, I'll wrap things up here. What a what a good 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 father we have. There is so much more that we could say that I didn't get to. But we thank you for this time that we had together, Lord, in your glorious word. And Father, I trust that you will use it as you always do. We thank you, Lord. Teach us, we pray. You're giving this pattern here. You have brought our hearts back to you, Lord, put our focus back on to you, Lord. We thank you for teaching us today. But more than that, we thank you, Lord, for taking on our debt and going to that cross, paying that debt of sin. We thank you, Lord, for the spirit that prays in our weakness. We know, Father, that all promises in you are yes and amen. To the glory of you. Use us, Father, to bring glory to you. You who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask, think, or imagine. us, Lord, to represent Christ and bring that glory to all who we put in our wings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you are in need of prayers this morning, please come forward. We'd love to um, pray with you. And uh, if God has called on your heart today and don't ignore that. Listen to the prompting of God. We'd love to talk or pray with you after services. But let's please stand as we sing the song of the invitation, How Great Thou Art.